0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're just so close to Election Day and the final presidential debate is coming up tomorrow. There is a lot between now and then and Election Day. Hope you're spending some of that time on your knees asking God to intervene in the affairs of this nation. Well, today we're going to talk with um, Lorraine Varela. In fact, we'll share a classic interview planned from the start a healing devotional. She'll be joining us later in this second hour, but we're going to wind our way through some of the news stories of the day. You should know that James Blind, as is usually the case, is producing today's program. Hilton is engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. While well, diving right into the news, Oregon employers have to provide free masks and face coverings or face shields To their employees, that's according to the state's expanded face covering guidance. Well, this new guidance comes from the Oregon Health Authority. It was released on Monday, and it means that business owners with indoor or outdoor spaces open to the public and employers with public and private workplaces to make free masks, face coverings, or face shields available to their employees. Now, I don't know who doesn't have a mask these days, but... Employers are now required to provide them. Employers are also strongly encouraged but not required to provide free face coverings for customers and visitors who do not have them. The Oregon Health Authority issued the expanded guidance uh, earlier this week, a day before the state surpassed 40,000 total COVID cases, The expanded guidance requires Oregonians to wear face mask uh, coverings in all private and public workplaces, except in cases where someone is alone in an office or in a private workplace. So if you're walking down the hall, if you're in a a shared space, you have to wear your mask. People have to also um, uh, are now uh, wearing masks in indoor or rather outdoor markets, street fairs, both private and public universities and health officials are also now recommending that people choose masks and face coverings over face shields. So I know those are much more comfortable. They're transparent. You can actually see someone's face. But the state is recommending that those are not sufficient to do what a mask is required to do. So there you have it, new guidance for the state of Oregon. Meanwhile, nine companies are in the race to find the first COVID-19 vaccine. Of those, three are in stage three trials, which is the last before they can be deemed safe. Well, as a vaccine nears completion, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they want to know how states are going to distribute those shots to their populations. It uh, ordered each state to file a plan by Friday, October 16th, and now the public is learning the details. Well, Oregon's plan for the vaccine stretches over 136 pages it's very complicated for what seems like a very simple project. Much of the first section talks about groups of people treated unfairly in the past, including the Latinx community and people of color, groups that are left more vulnerable to the virus. There's a focus on making sure those groups are not uh, left out this time, well, you would have thought they'd go right to the chase. These are the groups who are going to make a priority. Page two. Well, as for who would uh, get a limited amount of vaccine, Oregon follows the suggestions of the CDC. The first phase assumes a limited amount of shots available. Uh, they could go to healthcare workers who have the potential for direct or indirect exposure to coronavirus patients. If there were shots left over, the vaccine would be given to other essential workers and people at the higher risk of severe re- uh, reactions to the virus including anyone living in a long-term care facility 65 or older. Phase 2 assumes a larger number of doses available, and it would target highly affected communities not completely covered in Phase 1 and focus on racial and ethnic minorities, tribal members, prisoners, the homeless, and others. Shots would be distributed through a broad network of doctors, offices, clinics, retail pharmacies, public health clinics, Uh, and elsewhere. Well, the state would also use existing vaccination networks set up for the H1N1 virus. The plan isn't final. It's expected to evolve in the months ahead as more uh, is learned about the likely vaccines and their availability, including safety, effectiveness, side effects, storage, supply, distribution, and administration. So that is currently what the um, state of Oregon has submitted uh, as to how they plan to implement vaccines once, if, and once they are made Available And we understand we're moving in that direction. And as I mentioned, three vaccines are in stage three of the process, uh, stage three being the final of the essential stages. Well, the FBI is in possession of the laptop purportedly belonging to Hunter Biden, which allegedly contains emails revealing details of his foreign business dealings, including contacts in Ukraine and China. That's according to two senior administration officials. The FBI declined to confirm or deny the existence of an investigation into the laptop or the emails, as is standard practice. Also, it's been learned that the FBI and Justice Department officials concur with an assessment from the director of the National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, that's D-N-I, John Ratcliffe, that the laptop is not part of a Russian disinformation campaign targeting Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. Well, Ratcliffe on Monday said that Hunter Biden's laptop and the emails on it we're not part of some Russian disinformation campaign, despite claims from House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. Let me be clear. The intelligence community does not believe that because there is no intelligence that supports it. And we have uh, shared no intelligence with Adam Schiff or any member of Congress. Radcliffe went on to say it was simply not true. Well, If you thought it wasn't possible for Schiff to have any less credibility, the Department of Justice just proved you wrong. That's a quote from a senior intelligence official. In other news, Representative Jim Jordan calls for a special counsel investigation into the Hunter Biden emails. And Pierce Morgan blasts the media silence over the uh, scandal, uh, saying, Imagine if it were Don Jr.'s laptop. Sean Hannity sends cameras to Biden's home, urging the Democrat nominee to come outside and address the Hunter scandal. And the FBI says nothing to add uh, to DNI Radcliffe's assessment of Hunter Biden's laptop and emails. President Trump threatened to release an interview he granted 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl ahead of Sunday's airing, suggesting he would expose how fake and biased the sit down was. Trump sat down Tuesday with the veteran journalist at the White House. The interview is set to air on Sunday, along with interviews with Vice President Mike Pence, Democrat nominee former Vice President Joe Biden, and Democratic vice presidential nominee Senator Kamala Harris. The president said he was mulling, scooping CBS News by sharing the interview before the network does. I'm pleased to inform you that for the sake of accuracy in reporting, I am considering posting my interview with Leslie Stahl of of 60 Minutes prior to airtime, all in caps. Trump posted on Twitter, this will be done so that everyone can get a glimpse of what a fake and biased interview it all was, end quote. The president encouraged his Twitter followers to compare interviews with him uh, to interviews with Biden. Everyone should compare this terrible electoral intrusion with the recent interviews of sleepy Joe Biden. The president went on to tweet. The uh, the president has slammed the debate moderator as well uh, as totally partisan. And we'll talk more about whether or not that claim is accurate in a few moments. Well, an illegal immigrant from El Salvador was in custody on Tuesday after one of Houston police officers was shot and killed and another wounded at a southwest Houston apartment uh, complex, according to authorities. Houston Police Chief uh, Art Acideo or something very like that confirmed the arrest and officials with immigration and customs enforcement later said that the suspect was in, US, in the U.S. illegally. The slain officer was identified as Sergeant Harold Preston, a 41-year-old veteran of the force. We've lost just a wonderful human being, uh, the chief said during a news conference at Memorial Herman Hospital. He is leading with men and women on streets. Instead of choosing to sit in on Uh, An office drinking coffee and reading the paper. That is the man he was. He is a man who lived with elderly parents to take care of them. As good as he was as a cop, he was a better human being. That is just the guy that he was. And we are going to miss him. Well, the wounded officer identified as uh, Mayor Sylvester Turner as uh, Courtney Waller is a three-year veteran of the department who was shot in the arm. He was expected to recover. The suspect was identified as Elmer Rolando Martinez. He's 51. ICE officials uh, identified him as a convicted criminal alien who is unlawfully present in the U.S. Following his arrest on Tuesday, ICE officials from the agency's Enforcement and Removal Operations Unit placed an immigration detainer with the Harris County Sheriff's Office, ICE uh, said in a statement. Well, The the Border Patrol has arrested nearly 300 illegal immigrants in 18 hours, and they find 27 uh, in the country illegally trapped inside a train car in Texas. And the Border Patrol agent stopped a smuggling case where a child was separated from his parents. Well, the human coronavirus is inactivated by mouthwash and oral rinses, according to a new study. We'll tell you more about that later. Radio host Michael Savage has been ripped for a comments he made after Rush Limbaugh's cancer update was made. And a Delta passenger slapped a flight attendant during an argument over the airline's mask policy. Take a deep breath, people. Clayton Kershaw delivered a vintage performance to help the Dodgers to a Game 1 World Series win. You're listening to The Georgie Rice Show. We need to take a break, but we'll be back. To take a longer look at the news.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, we're going to hear a classic interview with Lorraine Varela, author of Planned From the Start, the healing devotional. Well, Amazon says it's going to allow employees to work from home till June. And Buffett's firm plans to pay a $4.1 million fine for the subsidiary's Iran sales. And Twitter is enacting uh, multiple changes around retweets and tweet recommendations ahead of the U.S. elections. And AMC warns investors of potential bankruptcy as the company looks to raise cash through the sale of 15 million shares. Well, Charlie Kirk has joined Sebastian Gorka in getting locked out for information not favorable to Biden Twitter has locked out the second Salem host. Rich Lowry points out that never before have the media been so openly fearful of asking or reporting something that might hurt a presidential candidate. What are supposed to be animating values of our adversarial press, Uh, informing the public, getting answers, holding the powerful to account, have all been subordinated to the protection racket that is coverage of Joe Biden. Jenna Ellis points out seriously nothing Hunter Biden, Joe Biden corruption laptop is trending, but the story, the top story is about the president's tax returns and the wall street journal points out that Joe Biden ought to clear the air on this China business in his own political interest. Is he the big guy in the email? What happened with the deal? China will be um, one of Biden's toughest foreign policy challenges and the unexplained documents won't go away once he's elected. If Republicans hold the Senate, you can bet there will be more digging. Well, Republicans are seeing high voter registration in key states, particularly in Florida, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Biden leads in battleground states, but Hillary led by more than several key states. Uh, David Harsanyi d- details where uh, Hillary was then and where Biden is now in National Review. It's uh, definitely worth a read. And at this point in time, in 2016, three out of four polls gave Hillary, Hillary rather a double-digit lead. They were the last to do so. We'll see what happens this time around. The New York Post says the Chinese are helping Facebook decide what Americans see. From Sohrab Amari, Senator Marco Rubio put it in an email. These revelations are yet another indication that big tech is no longer deserving of statutory protections that render it immune to a publisher's liability. Big tech critic Josh, Senator Josh Hawley, meanwhile, said this is uh, All the more reason for the Senate to demand that Mark Zuckerberg, under oath and before the election, give an account of what Facebook has been up to. Uh, Rod Dreyer says, um, it is insane. Get off of Facebook now. Well, you can decide that for yourself. Well, Oregon is allowing small public schools to open, but they're keeping small Christian schools closed. Well for months, government officials told Hermiston Christian School that it could reopen if it aided, uh, uh, if aided uh, rather abided by health guidelines. and in good faith, the school spent the money to prepare for its fall reopening in compliance with those guidelines. It reassured parents that the school would reopen based on what the state had told them and it retained its teachers and staff. Then the state moved the metaphorical goalpost for reopening. Goalposts that are outside the school's control and relate to health metrics in the school's county. Now, those same metrics are not being applied to public schools in the same area that were required to do the same thing. A double standard, a lawsuit has been filed. Well, a North Carolina policeman was brutally beaten as onlookers encouraged the attacker. Amazingly, nobody helped. Australia, four newborns have died due to COVID 19 travel restrictions they needed heart surgery it was unavailable in their city and no exceptions were being made the department of justice and fbi have confirmed that hunter biden's laptop is not part of a russian disinformation campaign and rudy Giuliani has given hunter biden's hard drive to police over the alleged photos of underage girls and illicit texts meanwhile nancy pelosi has abandoned the deadline and hope a deal on the COVID aid package, while Mitch McConnell signals the Senate Republicans they don't want a bigger relief package before the election. Sounds like a pretty dead deal. Elsewhere in politics, the president says the 2020 election is about choice between the American dream and a socialist, well, something else. The Biden campaign is facing backlash for a TV ad depicting a Michigan Tech CEO as a struggling bar owner. Apparently, he's not an actor. Well, Gretchen Whitmer admits it. No release from the lockdown without a vote for Joe Biden. Who's politicizing COVID-19? Well, the Democrat game plan, more than 67,000 Florida felons have registered to vote in the key swing state. And the leftist newspaper USA Today is supporting uh, Joe Biden in its first ever presidential endorsement. And for the record, the pollster who predicted the 2016 election says Donald Trump is on track to win again. Of course, we won't know if that's true until there's an actual election where uh, votes are cast and counted. Well, Twitter is uh, nuking retweets until after the election. Facebook is demonizing the satire site, the Babylon Bee, claiming the Monty Python spoof incites violence. They kind of pick and choose when that's a concern for them. The NFL is announcer, or rather the NFL announcer Joe Buck and Troy Aikman seem to mock a military flyover, and a Breonna Taylor grand jury has spoken out saying prosecutors steered them away from homicide charges. And an officer says the Breonna Taylor shooting had nothing to do with race. Well, chop zone businesses in Seattle are pursuing a lawsuit against the the riot-friendly city of Seattle. More states are seeing a rise in COVID-19 hospitalizations, and there has been a major health toll from the collapse in cancer screenings during the pandemic. Research is finding cold water may help ward off dementia. San Francisco aims to strip the names of founders, Abraham Lincoln, and an abolitionist from its public schools. Apparently, it's a Uh, Not a good idea to have been an abolitionist these days. It's hard to know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Like schools everywhere, the nation's report card is dumbing down standards to hide racial disparities, and liberal totalitarianism is dominating college campuses. In business and the economy, single-family home building is surging to more than 13-year high, and the the, uh, former vice president's tax rates would hit 62% in New York and California if enacted, If he's elected, what border crisis? Well, the largest domestic meth bust in DEA history has been made. It was worth eighteen point five million dollars. And the Pentagon chief says Trump's push on NATO defense spending has worked. No free riders. Russia appears set to extend its last remaining nuclear pact. And the Education Department is issuing a warning about national security risks posed by Chinese funding on campus. Well, on this day in history, 1892, School children from across the U.S. observe Columbus Day, according to the Gregorian date, by reciting for the first time the original version of the Pledge of Allegiance, written by Francis Bellamy for the youth's companion. 1892, Thomas Edison perfects a workable electric light at his laboratory in Menlo Park, New Jersey. 1917, members of the 1st Division of U.S. Army Training in Lunaville, France, they become the first Americans to see action on the front lines of World War I world, the war, rather, to end all wars. On this day in history, 1960, Democrat John F. Kennedy and Republican Richard M. Nixon, they clash in their fourth and final presidential debate in New York. 1967, tens of thousands of Vietnam War protesters began two days of demonstrations in Washington. 1971, President Richard Nixon nominates Lewis F. Powell and William H. Rehnquist to the U.S. Supreme Court. Both nominees would be confirmed. 1978, Saul Bellow wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, the first American honored since John Steinbeck back in 1962, so more than 10 years. And finally, on this day in history, 1996, President Clinton's don't ask, don't tell policy on gays in the military survives the first Supreme Court test. President Trump said he's ready for Thursday's debate against Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden, but he claims that it's going to be unfair because the moderator, NBC's Kristen Welker, Uh, will be biased against him. He was speaking on Fox and Friends in an interview on Tuesday saying that he wished there would be a neutral party moderating the debate. He called her a terrible debater. I mean, she is totally partisan. Her father and mother are big supporters of Joe Biden for a long time. They're supporters of the Democrat Party, and she uh, deleted her entire account. Welker's Twitter account was deactivated earlier this month, hours after C-SPAN host Steve Scully's account was uh, deleted. Scully, who has been uh, scheduled to moderate on October 15th in the debate uh, that was canceled, had claimed that uh, his account was hacked after a tweet showing him reaching out to a Trump foe, went viral. Kristen Welker is far worse than Scully. The president says, but I um, uh, do it anyway, referring to the uh, debate. This is the way it is. So let's set it up. Well The president claimed that there was uh, there were other journalists out there who would be more suited to conducting a debate in an unbiased manner. So he's made the charge. We'll see what actually happens when that debate takes place tomorrow night the third and final, or is it only the second? (laughs) I guess it's only the second debate between the two presidential hopefuls. Next, we'll hear a classic interview with Lorraine Varela, author of Planned from the Start, a healing devotional. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well,
1: as one of the youngest Planned Parenthood clinic directors in the nation, Abby Johnson was involved in upwards of 22,000 abortions, and counseled countless women on their reproductive choices. Planned Parenthood is responsible for 25% of the abortions in the United States, and yet they refer to themselves as what they do as women's health care. Well, Abby's passion surrounding a woman's right to choose led her to become a spokesperson for Planned Parenthood, fighting to enact legislation for the cause she so deeply believed in, until the day she saw something that changed everything, an abortion. Unplanned: The movie tells the story of Abby Johnson. She ran a Planned Parenthood facility. Her view of abortion was drastically altered when she actually witnessed an ultrasound guided abortion and watched a 13 week old infant fight for its life. Planned from the start picks up where unplanned ends. Author Lorraine Varela says one of four women will have an abortion by the time she turns 45. She offers healing and hope for those who have chosen abortion in the past. And her devotional does just that. Well, Lorraine Marie Varela is the author of Powerful Movements in the Presence of God and Love in the Face of ISIS. She and her husband, Gabriel, co-founded Inspiring Faith International, a ministry to help people from all walks of life draw closer to God. Together, they co-led a prayer and ministry team on the film set of Unplanned. Lorraine and Gabriel live in the Los Angeles area and can be found online at inspiringfaith.us. She joins us today to talk about this powerful devotional. Planned from the start, a healing devotional titled Joy, Forgiveness, Grace, Comfort, Hope. Words you don't usually associate with abortion, but this book will lead you into that kind of grace. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be with you today.
1: Well, it's an honor to have you on the program. Um, let me invite you to share a bit of Abby Johnson's story, the new film, Unplanned, that's soon to be released, and what your role was in making this movie.
2: Well, I think you did a beautiful job of describing Abby's story and what the viewers can expect to see um, from the movie Unplanned. The role that I have in the movie is that um, as a screenwriter, I was working with the directors on a different project, that I had written and the Lord told them one day to put it aside that unplanned was going to go first. So they gave me a call and they said that that's what the direction the Lord was leading them in. And would we, would my husband and I be willing to um, be the leaders of the, of a prayer team of a prayer movement over the film? And would we come on set and lead a ministry team? So leading up to the filming of unplanned, I led a prayer team um, daily for about
1: six months before we even stepped foot onto Mm. the set. Yeah. Uh, Tell us. Yeah. Please go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, it's okay. (laughs) I was going to ask you, how did you pray in anticipation for this movie uh, being made and what were your concerns as this very poignant story uh, that really shines a bright light on an organization that's extremely powerful and influential in our culture Mm -hmm. was about to be exposed in ways it hadn't on the big screen before.
2: I think that's an excellent question. No one's one's asked me that yet. Um, The thing is, is that prior to coming on set and prior to being um, given this opportunity, I had written a a prayer strategy guide over ISIS and the Middle East just a year earlier. And the Lord had taken me through a whole series of learning about how to pray His name and how to bring His name as a covering over different areas that cause us concern. So I had learned through writing that prayer strategy guide called Love in the Face of Isis on how to pray and how that's just relatable to us here today. So we pray for the covering of His presence. We pray for the covering of His peace. We pray for healing. Um, And then there's just seven covenant names that we use. And so I I patterned the strategies off of those strategies that I had learned in writing um, my book, Love in the Face of Isis. And so each day was one of those prayer strategies. Um, relating to the Lord's name.
1: Well, that tells me something about the movie and the kind of powerful story, um, powerfully and prayerfully told, uh, that I think is going to have an impact on on the culture. Now, this is a devotional that you say is really the the next step following the movie, because once the movie is released, it demands some sort of response. Describe what you... Uh, see this devotional doing as helping in that healing journey, because many of your viewers will have had abortions, will have been connected to abortion decisions, or whose lives have been impacted by abortion uh, will be in that uh, that theater, that audience.
2: Right. Well, you really hit on something there when you said that they'd be impacted by what they see, because one of the things that struck me, even as an audience member, I've worked on this film, but when I saw it for the first time, I realized the power of this film to really h- highlight truth in a way we haven't seen before. And it's all about the seeing. We couch our, our understanding about abortion through our language. And so instead of saying it's a baby, we'll call it a fetus, and we distance ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've covered ourselves in a cocoon through language, but this movie really unmasks abortion, and you cannot unsee what you've seen. And because of that and because of what we saw happening on the film set, we recognize the anointing and the power of this film to uncover um, wounds that have been hidden um, in shame for years and sometimes decades. Women that came onto our film set as our guests started to open up and say, I had an abortion 40 years ago, and I never told a person, never told a soul. And we're see- we saw cast members that were um, uncovering abortion. And so what was happening is the lid of shame was being un- un- taken off so that healing could come in. And that's really the first step is just being able to acknowledge that a life was lost and to be able to walk through that grief process if you've never done that before.
1: One of the things your devotional does is not only speak to a woman who may have had abortion, but you include those who have been impacted in other ways. And that may, in in many cases, involve men as well.
2: That's correct. Sure. It's the man who forced a woman to have an abortion or coerced or was just complicit with her desire and didn't know how to say no. It's not just the man who's been involved, but it's also parent. You know, there are many parents who take their children out of shame to an abortion clinic, even those in the church, pastors who've taken their daughters to have an abortion because they didn't want that type of shame on their ministry. And so we, we see those people in need of healing as well. It could be a friend who drove a friend out of a compassionate heart wanting to just help in a crisis situation and not knowing what else to do, and then living with that regret for years. So abortion's arms reach wide.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the key areas of emotional pain that men and women suffer post-abortion?
2: Well, there are five, and what's interesting to me is that it's not just the pro-life movement that have identified these areas, but it's also the pro-choice movement that have identified that there are key areas of emotional pain. One that we just talked about was grief. Um, that was really huge. There's, there's guilt. There's shame and regret and depression, and those are the five, five key areas that the Lord doesn't want to leave people in those areas of pain, and for every area where there's suffering, he has an antidote of peace through, as you mentioned earlier, joy and forgiveness, grace, comfort, and hope.
1: Now, how is uh, Planned from the Start structured to begin that healing process, and how does that begin?
2: What I wanted to do when I set out to write this book was to find people who had been touched by abortion, who had been affected by abortion in their life, and found healing by the hand of God. So there are five testimonies of supernatural healing, and I'd say every healing is a supernatural healing. And um, everybody's journey is a little bit different. So I, I interviewed four women and one man who had gone through abortion and came out on the other side healed through a journey that they went with the Lord. There's power in testimony. And I say, if God could do it for them, He could do it for you. And then following the, each testimony, there are eight days of a devotional um, opportunities to go deeper in just um, receiving the joy over grief or the forgiveness for guilt. And so, um, the eight days are structured just with a, a scripture verse, um, a devotional message, and then some questions that just help um, probe deeper into um, the heart of God and how he, how he would want to respond to you. So um, I'm just opening up the book right now randomly, and, and one of the questions in a pause for reflection would be, do you believe that Jesus is the healer of your heart? Of your heart? Is it difficult to accept that he cares about every facet of your life? especially in those areas that continue to cause you pain? What truth do you find in His Word that confirms His love for you? And so the questions are meant just to be a jumping point um, for just the time of journaling and sitting in the quietness um, of your your home and in your own personal space and letting the Lord minister to your spirit.
1: We're talking with Lorraine Marie Varela. Her book is titled, Plan from the Start, A Healing Devotional, Joy, Forgiveness, Grace, Comfort, Hope. There is freedom available and we're going to continue our conversation on that very subject in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: I'm continuing my conversation with Lorraine Marie Varela. She's the author of Planned from the Start, a healing devotional. It features joy, forgiveness, grace, comfort, and hope. Not words normally associated with one who has had an abortion experience, but this is an introduction to the grace and the love of God. And it's a wonderful follow-up and companion to the movie that will soon be released, titled Unplanned. Now, in the book, you... Um, uh, you feature uh, the stories of many who have had uh, e- encounters with abortion and have experienced healing. You told us a little bit of uh, story just before the break. Can you tell us about the stories in this book from people who have experienced that kind of healing?
2: Sure. One of, well, I start with a story with a woman named Annette, who was one of our prayer ministry partners on set, actually. And Annette was 19 years old when she had an abortion. And what was so compelling to me about Annette's story is that she talked about how the moment that she had her abortion, she knew that she had taken a life, that she had no place or space to grieve her loss because the people around her said, well, nothing happened. You didn't do anything wrong. You just removed a piece of tissue. It's just an abortion. And why are you grieving? And so she said that she had no space to grieve, and that grief is the first place for healing to begin, because grief acknowledges that a life was lost. And so we start with her story to talk about the power of allowing that grief to come to the surface so that the Lord can then um, bring healing to that part of your heart.
1: And there are other compelling stories uh, in the book as well. You make the point that journaling is a very powerful tool to bring healing. How does journaling help uh, to go through that process that begins with grief but doesn't end there?
2: Right. Well, for me, one, one of the things that's so powerful about journaling is, first of all, If you've had an abortion, most likely you've been hearing a lot of negative messages in your heart that doesn't come from the heart of God, that you're not worthy, that you've that you committed the unpardonable sin, that what you've done is unforgivable. And those are just the lies and the accusations of the enemy. So we've done a really good job of tuning into what the enemy has to say, but sometimes we haven't done as good of a job of tuning into the heart of God. And what journaling does is just so powerful to allow truth to begin to well up from our innermost spirit as we're reading the word of God and we're coming into agreement with what he says and we're learning how to tune into what his heart is for us. And so um, because there's nobody looking over your shoulder to see if you're doing it right, you know, you're able to just bring out the innermost part of your heart and what you're feeling and let the Lord just lead you through um, and guide you through this journey of healing.
1: How have you found uh, journaling to be helpful in and effective to heal your own heart, the wounds of the heart? Well,
2: um I have to give a full disclosure um, that I have not personally had an abortion, and um, the directors Carrie Ch- Carrie Solomon and Chuck Conselman um, had invited me to write this devotional, knowing that I am not a post of women. and it was so interesting because I was speaking with somebody in the church who said, Lorraine, it's a really good thing that you haven't had an abortion because there's been so much shame in the church to talk about this, and women have gone through, and men have gone through abortion, need to know that there is grace to cover their sin from those that haven't. You know, they feel like there's been so much judgment. In fact, there was a study of over a 1,000 post-abortive women who, had, who were Christians in the church, and the question was asked, did you go to your pastor or to a leader in your church? to discuss your decision or your abortion afterwards. And it was like 75% said no, because they felt like they would not be received well and that the church was more willing to gossip about their situation than to provide help and healing. Mm. So there's just such an importance within the church to be able to lift off the shame because we don't talk about uh, the post-abortive woman and man. We don't talk about that. We talk about the sanctity of human life, but we never really feel like we have the freedom to reach in and talk to and address that situation primarily specifically, if you've had an abortion or not. What does the Lord have to say about it?
1: Yeah. Well, how can the church get involved to bring healing to the men and women in their congregations who've been impacted by abortion?
2: i say the first thing is to lift the lid of shame off of it by speaking about it. I think sometimes pastors feel like they want to talk about it, but they don't know what to say. They don't want to heap on more condemnation, not re- not realizing that by not saying something that that more condemnation is being heaped on. So I'd say be educated. There are organizations, there are pre- pregnancy resource centers that have helps for mm-hmm. pastors, um, guides that they can, they can get a hold of and, um, just educate yourself on what, what that person is experiencing because it's more than just having lost a child. Abortion has so many different um, consequences that people don't even realize as they go through it. I had talked with a woman who had had abortion 40 years prior, and I asked her to read the manuscript, and as she read the manuscript, she was healed and reconnected to emotions that she had had long since been disconnected from because of her abortion. One of those areas is a, la- a disconnect from your children, your current children or future children, um, because that's what abortion does. It severs relationship. There's like a death that happens, and there's a severing of relationship with your children as well as with your spouse or your significant other. And so those are some of the things that pastors need to be aware of. You know, there can be drug addictions, addictions, addictions to alcohol, um, food for comfort. There can be self-image issues. And all these things that we think of as independent um, areas of concern, we don't realize they can have the root in abortion.
1: Now, in addition to healing, is there a greater purpose for this book? And what do you believe will happen uh, if a person walks through these 40 days, this journey? uh, What can, can they expect?
2: Yes, what I love about this book is that it's really not just solely about somebody who's had an abortion, because it's such an overarching theme, and that theme is that God has a plan for your life, and He's had that plan since eternity began. And so many times, because of the choices that we make in life, we feel like we're disconnected with the plans that God had. We're not worthy to step into those plans. And so we kind of turn off that channel, and we don't we don't understand His heart of love and His heart for our good and His heart for our future. It was a hope and a purpose. And so plans from the start, I love that it just gives that positive um, response, to what's really a negative unplanned nothing in God's kingdom has been unplanned over your life He's planned good for you he's planned hope he's planned future and it's just reconnecting um your heart with his plans.
1: Well, this is a wonderful beginning to that healing process that walks the readers from beginning through to the end. And I'm so grateful that this is a companion to a movie that I think is going to open many old wounds and acknowledge that there is grief that is the beginning of that process. The book, once again, is titled Plan from the Start, a Healing Devotional, Joy, Forgiveness, Grace, Comfort, Hope. Lorraine, thank you so much for talking with us today. Georgina, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a look at some of the top news stories uh, over the last 24, 48 hours. Well, the backdrop of a summer of civil unrest, that's what they're referring to it, in America's largest and some of the not-so-large cities like Portland, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, it looms large as motivated voters are preparing to submit their ballots. And some 40 million Americans have already done so for president in less than two weeks. Police departments, many of which saw days, weeks, and even months-long anti-police brutality protests and riots this summer, uh, said that they're hoping for the best when voters hit the polls on November the 3rd, but they're also preparing for the worst in the days before and after. There is no secret uh, that this election is more contentious than in years past. New York Police Department's Chief of Department, Terrence Monahan uh, said during a press conference earlier this week covering election preparedness, the NYPD is one of the many departments throughout the country with a plan to in case any protests devolve into criminal activity. Well, in Chicago, much like New York City, they've been um, experiencing civil unrest, including devastating looting downtown. Its police department, they're now working with several city agencies in coordinated efforts to be prepared for any fallout, whether at the polls or on the streets during the election period. Chicago's police superintendents and at a recent news conference that police there and emergency officials are training to to make sure that they're ready, regardless of whatever scenario happens on Election Day. Many cities across the country, they're doing similar planning. He said last week, we're all in conversations with our counterparts across the country about what we might expect. But everything is uncertain, and so we're trying our best to anticipate any hazard that might happen, including a weather hazard. Snow might happen in our city, this is in Chicago, along with anything related to protests, embedded agitators that might loot or cause violence or destroy property, a real concern all across the country. Well, even without the prevalent unrest in certain parts of the country, this year's elections, nonetheless – uh, going to look a lot different. People have the option of voting early by mail. Many have chosen to do that. Officials anticipate clear results might take days, if not weeks. Some of the uh, police departments in big cities have to say uh, a great deal about what they're an- anticipating and how they're planning for the period leading up to. During and after Election Day in Miami, the police chief George Kalina says that this week uh, it was difficult to tell what kind of unrest, if any, the city is going to face in the days leading up to the election. We're going to have more people working, a bigger, more robust, uniformed presence. And then we're going to have some undercover officers that will go by polling places. Kalina said the city was also be prepared uh, with groups of officers who could mobilize at shorter notice, especially those uh, groups that want to create havoc. Uh, this state, referring to Flora, uh, Florida, is up for grabs, according to the polls, and it's a state that both candidates covet, obviously, and that's uh, always uh, been the case. He says, I can't help but wonder uh, that if that's not going to inspire some groups Uh, who want to do their part to uh, move forward to or to win to, well, wreak havoc in the community. He says his concerns are not based on any credible threats, but he plans to be ready nonetheless. In New York City, they said uh, to be the largest police force in the nation, the NYPD is directing its officers to be prepared for deployment beginning the 26th of this month. As they brace for increasing protests and in lead up to the uh, following, uh, leading up to and following Election Day, according to an internal memo from earlier this month. The at NYPD, they're planning for potential civil unrest in the New York City, and the nation began a contentious series of weeks, starting with the U.S. Senate confirmation hearing of Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett, who will be voted on on Monday this week. So preparing for that in addition to the election that will follow shortly thereafter. Well, Portland, we're no stranger to violent protests that have at times devolved into riots. Portland's police bureau is working with Multnomah County Sheriff's Office. They're going to be upping law enforcement staffing during the following uh, during and following the election period as a precaution, according to the department press release last week. In the past, some individuals and groups have gathered and marched following the election results, both in celebration, sometimes because they're angered or upset. In some instances, significant damage has been done to local businesses, which didn't change the election outcome but hurt our community members. And while we promote and support the exercise of First Amendment rights to assemble and engage in free speech, engagement in criminal activity will not be tolerated. Well, I appreciate that statement from the chief of police, but I'm not so sure the mayor or the uh, Multnomah County attorney general would uh, agree with that. Um, the Portland Police Bureau official said that they will not tolerate any demonstrators blocking pedestrians in vehicular traffic, lighting fires, vandalizing and damaging property, illegal use of weapons and violence. Now, again, they can charge them, they can hold them, but unless those charges and these individuals are held accountable, it's of little use. So that's what's uh, being anticipated in Portland. Seattle is also gearing up for the election period. Seattle's police department is set to limit the time's, uh, time off allowed for personal for personnel rather around the time of election day to make sure the department is able to adequately provide public safety at any events, gatherings, demonstrations related to the election. Uh, The uh, spokesperson for the department there said that uh, they recently launched their community response group to dynamically deploy to unplanned large scale events and ensure that the Seattle police department is able to quickly respond to nine one one emergencies in case that response is uh, necessary. Similar plans are being made in Orlando, Florida, in Minneapolis, in Chicago, in Philadelphia and elsewhere as the election approaches. And given the tenor of uh, the way things are right now, it's, un- uh, it's difficult to anticipate what might happen as a result. Uh, depending on who wins, who loses and what's being made of it, things could be- get rather ugly or perhaps people will just sober up and accept the outcome of a, uh, an election and we move forward. Well, hope springs eternal. Well, Alexander Hamilton might be rolling over in his grave. The New York Post, one of America's oldest newspapers founded by America's first monetary expert turned pop culture icon, has been muzzled on Twitter for reporting a bombshell that could affect the presidential election. Well, Twitter has refused to unlock the New York Post's account since last Wednesday unless the outlet deletes multiple tweets about its reporting on the 2020 presidential nominee joe biden's son hunter biden the post reported both the san francisco-based social media platform and facebook came under fire this week after the two blocked users from sharing a post article uh, showing purported communication between 2020 democratic nominee biden and hunter biden and an ad- advisor to the ukrainian energy company but while the big apple tabloid is uh, gagged online twitter allows the likes of louis farrakhan richard spencer Ali Ali Khomeini, uh, Nicolas Maduro, and O.J. Simpson to tweet freely. Farrakhan, of course, is the leader of the most prominent uh, figure of the Nation of Islam, a militant black supremacist and nationalist group that formed in the 1930s. Since taking leadership in the late 70s, he has been accused of anti-Semitism, homophobia for his comments and sermons, and certainly anti-Christian as well. But he's right up there with uh, with others. O.J. Simpson, they're allowed to tweet freely about whatever they choose. However, the Washington Post, or excuse me, the uh, New York Post, not so much. Well, Pope Francis called for the creation of civil union laws for same sex couples in a new documentary that aired in Rome on Wednesday, breaking from the Vatican stance on the issue. Homosexuals have a right to be part of the family, he said, um, a uh, in Francisco a documentary about his life. According to the Catholic news agency, they're children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or be made miserable because of it. End quote. What we have to create is a civil union law, he added. That way they are legally covered. I stood up for that. End quote. Francis' comments, which are likely to be seen by many Catholics as controversial because it runs counter to church doctrine, are reflective of his own views and not an indication that the church will change its teaching on the uh, same-sex relationships, although he's the Pope, so I'm not sure how that uh, works. But as the Archbishop of Buenos Aires, Francis uh, supported civil unions for same-sex couples as an alternative to marriage, but had never publicly expressed support for the unions as the Pope. That has now been done. And there will be uh, significant conversations around that in the Catholic Church as a consequence. Well, in the final weeks of the campaign, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden is doubling down on his support for the transgender movement. But his comments on uh, eight to 10-year-olds is what sparked most of the controversy. We'll talk a little bit more about that and what one expert says in chiding uh, the former vice president's comments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break and we'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. and
1: hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Ryan Anderson, Dr. Anderson, a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and the author of the book, When Harry Became Sally Responding to the Transgender Moment, which, by the way, is an excellent book on the subject. Responded to the uh, Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden in doubling down on his support for the transgender movement, particularly when it related to children declaring they are what they are not. Well, at a virtual LGBTQ summit, the former vice president promised to win full rights for the transgender community and advance LGBT rights around the globe. At his uh, town hall meeting on Thursday, he told a mother who said her eight-year-old daughter was transgender that he supports children who want to change their gender. The former vice president uh, is quoted as saying, I would just flat out change the law, eliminate those executive orders, number one. The idea that an eight- or ten-year-old child decides, you know, I decided I want to be transgender, that's what I think I'd like to be, Uh, it would make my life a lot easier. There should be zero discrimination, uh, the Candidate continued. Well, Ryan Anderson, author of the book, When Harry Became Sally, says no adult should be doing anything to confuse a child about who they are with the body they have. He says we are our bodies and we shouldn't be suggesting to young people that they might be trapped in the wrong body or that we should be blocking their puberty or we should be giving them cross-sex hormones. That's what this is ultimately about. Children who don't feel comfortable in their own bodies and then adults suggesting to them that their truth might uh, be actually the opposite sex uh, he continued, and that mo- that uh, modern medicine could then transform their body to align with the opposite sex. Anderson also suggested that, that adults should help children feel comfortable in their own bodies, not create confusion. We also don't know how these drugs long-term are going to impact the development of these children who are given the drugs related to uh, this transformation. When asked about discrimination and children choosing puberty blockers and hormones, he replied, what's happening here is that liberals are using uh, that word discrimination to say that any disagreement about transgenderism is discrimination. So if you disagree with puberty blocking drugs for children, if you disagree with cross-sex hormones for teenagers, uh, they could then accuse you of discrimination. We would just reject that framing of a question. What we have here is a disagreement. I think it's bad medicine to give a child puberty blocking drugs just to delay or prevent their natural biological puberty. I think it's bad medicine to give children the opposite sex hormones. That's not discrimination. That's a disagreement of the nature and purpose of medicine. nature and purpose of healing and wholeness. And so I think we need to have the conversation along with, along those lines to what's actually going to bring healing, wholeness, happiness, and fulfillment to children who are struggling with their gender identity, not hijack language of the civil rights movement. Well, he also spoke about the establishment media's uh, decision to give a pass to people Uh, who are in favor of transitioning children. I think most people in the media realize this is something the vast majority of Americans are not on board with, he told CBN News. Whatever you may think about an adult transitioning, the vast majority of Americans think that children should be given The time and the space to continue growing and developing in their bodies, their own bodies. When it comes to kids, Americans understand that we really shouldn't do anything to interfere with their bodily development or, for that matter, their psychological development. Give them the social environment, the school environment, the family environment in which they can feel comfortable with their own body. Don't transform the body. Don't corrupt the environment. Well, President Trump has. uh, not been speaking about transgender issues on the campaign trail, but his administration has taken some strategic action that includes reversing an Obama-era mandate that allowed students that identify as transgender to use opposite-sex bathrooms in schools and a military policy that limits transgender service members. Um, We'll see if that comes up as an issue in the presidential debate tomorrow night. Well, critical race theory is in the news these days, but lots of people still may not know what it really means. They think critical race theory is part of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's civil rights efforts. Well, in truth, it is directly opposed to the central concept and vision he most stood for. One of the last and greatest civil rights leaders of our time and one of King's closest friends and advisors, did understand critical race theory and explicitly rejected it, as many do. Wyatt T. Walker was a legend in the American civil rights movement, executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in the critical years of 1960 to 64. He was a co-founder of the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, chief of staff to King, King's field general in the organized resistance against notorious uh, Birmingham Safety Commissioner Bull Connor. Walker compiled and named King's The Letters from Birmingham Jail. He was with King for the March on Washington that produced the I Have a Dream speech and in Oslo for the Nobel Peace Prize. Afterward, Walker came north to New York City to serve as minister of the Canaan Baptist Church of Christ in Harlem. He was one of the nation's most respected ministers until his death in 2018. In his book, David and Goliath, uh, Malcolm Gladwell dedicated uh, a chapter to walker and in uh, his uh, work in birmingham the cover of ebony magazine called walker the man behind martin luther king in short no one may have known king's uh, thoughts better or been closer than was walker well even as he aged walker never backed down from the passionate pursuit of civil rights for all later in his life he was chairman of the reverend al sharpton's national action network and a supporter of the reparations for african americans i got to know him soon after the um, Uh, um, amadou diallo uh, had been horribly gunned down in new york city in 99 Uh, he in new york formed the first and longest surviving charter school now named after that um, individual a charter school of harlem and uh, until he died in 2018 expressed his views on the subject well in 2015 Walker uh, co-authored an essay about education reform and race relations where he wrote, Today, too many remedies, such as critical race theory, the increasingly fashionable post-Marxist, post-modernist approach that analyzes society as institutional group power structures rather than on a spiritual or one-to-one human level, are taking us in the wrong direction, separating even elementary school children into explicit racial groups and emphasizing differences instead of similarities. The answer is to go deeper than race, deeper than wealth, deeper than ethnic identity, deeper than gender, to teach ourselves to comprehend each person, not as a symbol of a group, but as a unique and special individual within a common context of shared humanity. To go to that fundamental place where we are all simply mortal creatures seeking to create order, beauty, family and connection to the world that on its own seems to bend too often toward randomness and entropy. Well, before publishing the essay, he was questioned uh, about making sure he really wanted to be on record in his opposition to critical race theory, which was on the rise. There was some concern that this might put him in a bad way with other civil rights leaders, but he was never backing—he never backed down um, in his life—and he reiterated that he was uh, holding to this position. In hindsight, uh, Walker wasn't so much against anything as for something. He was for what Dr. King was for, and for what so many well-intended people. Uh, are for many um, uh, who dis- who misunderstood the difference between critical race theory and traditional civil rights. Well, Walker was for a fundamental respect for all people without regard to their ethnic group or religious or color of their skin. His civil rights views uh, tie back to religious uh, values, to humanism, to rationalism, to the Enlightenment, and the roots of critical race theory are planted in entirely different intellectual soil. It begins with um, Uh, blocks with each person assigned to an identity or economic block, as in Marxism. Human-to-human interactions are replaced by block-to-block interactions. And as Walker tried to make clear, thinking in terms of blocks of people rather than of people as individuals leads to a whole set of insidious results. How can two people bind together in friendship if they are members of power blocks that are presumed to be inherently opposed? Now, this explains in, in part why we cannot come together with our disagreements? How can a person prove his innocence if he is branded as inevitably a part of a guilty group? Why should an individual strive to succeed by individual merit if group dynamics are presumed to be overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelming and inescapable? How can we ever find peace among the races and religions if we won't um, look to each other person by person based on actual facts and actual intentions rather than assigned ideas? Well, the saddest thing is to see well-intentioned people trying to achieve Martin Luther King's dream by employing critical race theory methods that are the opposite of King's dream. King asked for everyone to be judged by the content of their own individual character, not by their inescapable genetic links to post-Marxist-style analytical power groups. Supporters of civil rights should follow the example of Walker and not allow the two incompatible definitions of civil rights, King's and critical race theory, to be confused with each other, they are most definitely not the same. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
1: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the president of the Portland chapter of the NAACP resigned on Tuesday, effective immediately, due to allegations of sexually abusing three men years ago. Uh, The Reverend Elbert Mondanane, who uh, has denied the allegations against him, resigned more than a week after an explosive story from the Portland Mercury detailed the accusations made against him. Well, in a statement, the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, said that the resignation was effective immediately. The NAACP is firmly opposed to all forms of abuse, assault, harassment, or discrimination. Such behavior has no place in the association, regardless of whether these instances occurred in previous or current administrations. The civil rights organization said, we are continuing to investigate the matter in accordance with our bylaws and, if necessary, will take additional and appropriate action. Well, the former director was elected president of the Portland chapter in 2018. Well, In the story in the Portland Mercury, which is not a a, a, um, tabloid I would typically recommend or read, they detailed the allegations made by three men accusing of um, repeated uh, abuse. Uh, um, uh, They were members of Celebration Tabernacle. It's a Pentecostal church in North Portland where Mondanay was the pastor. The alleged abuse happened in the mid-90s to the mid-2000s. Eight others have accused him of psychological abuse during that time period. He has remained the senior pastor at the church uh, as of today. Well, in 2019, according to the Consumer Expenditure Survey published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Americans on average spent more on taxes than they did on food, clothing, health care, and entertainment combined. Well, the bottom line? Funding their local, state, and federal governments cost Americans more on average last year, which was before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, uh, than making sure their families were fed, clothed, had health care, and could keep a dog or cat, buy toys for their kids, pay for cable TV, and attend an occasional baseball game or movie. Well, for each of the last seven years, the uh, uh, BLS has published a Table R1 based on the Consumer Expenditure Survey And the table provides the average annual detailed expenditures made by what the uh, BLS calls consumer benefits. That's the Bureau of Labor Statistics, by the way. Well, consumer units, explain the uh, Bureau, include families, single persons living alone or sharing a household with others, but who are financially independent or two or more persons living together who share major expenses. Well, as uh, noted last year, uh, going back to 2013, Americans, on average, spend more money on taxes than they do on food, clothing, um, uh, apparel, and services, and health care combined. But in three of the last four years, according to the data published in the annual uh, Americans, uh, uh, annual table, Americans, on average, not only spent more on taxes than on food, clothing, and health care combined, but also spent more on taxes than on food, clothing, health care, and entertainment combined. Uh, I got the mail earlier today since I'm working from home, and there was my property tax assessment. I didn't want to open because I didn't want to weep openly um, (laughs) in the middle of the day and before preparing to do a show. But it's always a little disconcerting when another tax uh, shows up at your doorstep. And uh, looking at your ballot as you're preparing to uh, vote in this presidential election, down ballots, you're going to find some uh, calls for tax increases for a number of initiatives here locally and uh, elsewhere. So keep that in mind, how much we actually pay in taxes, and those are all the taxes combined. Well, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, has agreed to plead guilty to three federal criminal charges and an $8 billion settlement related to their role in the opioid crisis Justice Department officials told the Associated Press on Wednesday the settlement is the strongest effort to date by the Justice Department to hold a major drug maker accountable for the opioid crisis in the United States. Opioid uh, overdoses have caused roughly 470,000 deaths in the country since 2000 as prescription painkillers, including OxyContin and fentanyl, have flooded the U.S. market. The crisis, they tell us, is ongoing with opioid overdose deaths topping 50,000 in 2019 and additional deaths coming in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, Purdue will admit to reporting misleading information to the Drug Enforcement Administration in order to increase production of OxyContin. The company will also admit to falsely portraying the efficacy of its efforts to avoid drug diversion or any process by which the medication is transferred from the intended person toward illegal use. Well, the Sackler family, whose members uh, own Purdue, will not be exempt from criminal liabilities as part of that plea deal. A 2019 court filing reviewed by the AP stated that the family made $13 billion off sales of OxyContin, although a lawyer for the family has claimed the actual revenue was far less after taxes. Well, as part of the plea deal, the Sacklers will uh, eventually leave Purdue and the drug maker would be transformed into a public benefit company operated by a trust that would balance needs of the company against those of American consumers. In addition to the Justice Department, almost every U.S. state, as well as local governments and Native American tribes, have brought lawsuits against drug distributors and manufacturers, including McKesson, AmerisourceBergen, Bergen, and Cardinal Health, and Teva. And the ongoing litigation is extremely complex. Negotiations and other settlements have been delayed because of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. But this is uh, certainly not the end of these um big settlements 8 billion dollars in this in this case. Well I found this rather curious but a new study conducted by researchers at the Penn State College of Medicine they found that a common dental item can inactivate human coronaviruses mouthwash and oral rinses. Well for the study the results of which were published in the journal of on medical virology researchers tested various oral and um other rinses uh, which include a 1% solution of baby shampoo, a neti pot, peroxide sore mouth cleansers, and mouthwashes to determine how well they inactivated human coronaviruses. Now, I'm not sure if this includes the novel coronavirus, because there are there's more than one coronavirus, but the baby shampoo solution, which is often used by head and neck doctors to rinse the sinuses, the researchers noted in a news release regarding the findings, was particularly effective. The solution inactivated greater than 99.9% of human coronavirus after a two minute contact time. Uh, the mouthwash and oral rinses were also efficacious, they found. Many inactivated greater than 99.9% of viral of the virus after only 30 seconds of contact time, and some inactivated 99.99% of the virus after 30 seconds. But more specifically, researchers used a test to replicate the interaction of the virus in the nasal and oral cavities with the rinses and the mouthwashes, as the nasal and oral cavities are thought to be the main points of entry for the human coronavirus, including SARS-CoV-2, better known as COVID-19. Well, though the researchers didn't specifically test SARS-CoV-2 in the study, The novel virus is is, uh, genetically similar to the other human coronaviruses tested, leading the researchers to hypothesize that the results might be similar. Well, the strain of human coronavirus was mixed with baby shampoo solutions, various peroxide antiseptic rinses, and various brands of mouthwash, allowing the solution to um, iterate with the virus for different amounts of time, including 30 seconds, one minute, and two minutes, The solutions were then diluted to prevent further virus uh, inactivation, uh, they wrote, uh, to measure how much virus was inactivated and researchers placed the uh, diluted solutions in contact with cultured human cells. They counted how many cells remained alive after a few days of exposure to the viral solution and used that number to calculate the amount of human coronavirus that was inactivated as a result of the exposure to these mouth and oral rinses that were tested. Well, the lead study author, a uh, distinguished professor of microbiology and immunology and obstetrics and gynecology said the results um, show that the amount of virus, the viral load as how they refer to it, in the affected person's mouth could be reduced by using these common over-the-counter products, ultimately helping to reduce the spread of the novel virus. Now, they're not recommending that you go out and purchase these things at Walgreens, just start using them as a gargle or to cleanse your nostrils. They would need to be Um, the testing needs to continue. They need to be administered by professionals or at least the formula. But while we wait for a vaccine to be developed, they went on to say uh, methods to reduce transmission are needed. In a statement, he said, the products we tested are readily available, often already part of people's daily routines. Well, the team's findings bolster past research that also looked at how oral rinses and mouthwashes uh, may uh, be able to reduce the viral load of human coronaviruses. For instance, a study published the... uh, and the scientific journal Function in May also concluded that mouthwash could play a role in preventing the transmission of the novel coronavirus. Additionally, a more recent study published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases they came to a similar conclusion. Uh, Dr. Meyer said that his findings add to this research, noting that his team evaluated the salutations uh, uh, t- at longer um uh, longer contact times, in addition to studying over-the-counter products and nasal rinses that were not evaluated in the study. So people who test positive for COVID and the return home to quarantine may possibly transmit the virus to those they live with. Certain professions, including dentists and uh, other healthcare workers, are at constant risk of exposure. He says that clinical trials are needed to determine if its uh, products can reduce the amount of uh, virus COVID-positive patients or uh, the risks of high um, high-risk Uh, occupations to prevent them from spreading or contracting the virus themselves. Anyway, I thought it was rather interesting. There have been several studies that have come to the same conclusion, again, that human coronaviruses can be inactivated, that's the word that they've chosen, by mouthwash and oral rinses, a study, again, uh, published just recently. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Out of time, need to take a break. We'll be back to wrap things up. you listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Rush Limbaugh announced earlier this week that he has cancer, that it's spreading, and he's not expected ultimately to survive. He has stage four lung cancer. But I read in Christian Post today that Rush Limbaugh is clinging to his personal relationship with Jesus after sharing that uh, cancer update. Now, I knew his brother was a follower of Jesus. I didn't really know about Rush Limbaugh. Now, the temptation is for each of us to rush to our Uh, side of the camp we belong to. We hate Rush Limbaugh. We love Rush Limbaugh. We're indifferent. Um, But when you think about what's ultimately important, he apparently has a personal relationship with Christ and he is recognizing his need for him and that ultimately he will stand before him at the end of his life. Well, according to the uh, Christian Post report, the popular conservative talk radio host, he declared that he is clinging to his faith in uh, Jesus despite a new health update revealing his cancer is progressing. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, he said on his radio program on Monday. There's a profession of faith with the millions of listeners he has. It is of immense value, strength, confidence. That's why I'm able to re- remain fully committed to the idea that. Uh, Uh, What is supposed to happen will happen when it's meant to. Well, the iconic political commentator thanked everyone who has sent forth prayers and well-wishes. He called the support a series of blessings. There is some uh, comfort in knowing that some things are not uh, in our hands. There's a lot of fear associated with that, too, but there's some comfort. It's helpful to be able to trust and believe in a higher plan. Uh, He uh, received the Presidential Medal of Freedom at the State of the Union in February, which was for him a highlight. Well, the 69-year-old first revealed in February that he was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. He admitted that at the time, his diagnosis, he had zero symptoms, and while he was still not in much pain, he's accepted that his recent scans revealed some progression of the cancer. Well, the scans did show some progression. He said prior to that, the scans had shown that we had rendered the cancer dormant. That's my uh, phrase for it. We had stopped the growth. It had been reduced, and it had become manageable. He added that it's always the reality and the knowledge that that can change and it can come back because it's cancer. It outsmarts pretty much everything that we know. And this, of course, is um, stage four lung cancer. We well, he went on to say that his physician has since tweaked his chemotherapy treatment in hopes of keeping additional progression at bay for as long as possible. But it is stage four and it's progressing. He's keeping the hope that the growth can be reduced again. If it happened once, it could happen again, the Missouri native uh, said in response. Well, while sharing the update With his millions of listeners, he emotionally said, it's tough to realize that the days uh, where I do not think I'm under a death sentence are over. We all know that we're going to die at some point, he said, when you have a terminal disease diagnosis uh, that has a time frame to it, then that puts a different psychological and even physical awareness to it. And I was reminded, you know, during this very divisive political season, we tend to um, associate with certain camps, collections of ideas that we embrace or reject, And we um, sometimes look at other individuals in the camp over there whose worldview, whose uh, values are so sharply different from our own, and we forget that ultimately each one of us is accountable to God, that we are going to stand before him, that every one of us is a slave to sin if we're not in relationship, in right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, by the work of his Holy Spirit. And I just want to challenge you. I I mentioned this last week as well, challenge you if there is someone on the political scene, some influencer, uh, some entertainment figure that you just cannot stand, somebody whose voice you can't tolerate, somebody whose views you diametrically uh, opposed, um, someone whose actions you, um, you find absolutely offensive, to single that individual out, that group out, and begin to pray for their salvation. I think about Rush Limbaugh, who has been a divisive figure in our uh, nation. He's been an incredible uh, and very popular talk show host for many, many years. He's been at the top of the heat for decades. Uh, He's coming to the end of his life. He, at some point, and I don't know when that occurred, maybe recently, maybe a long time ago, he has acknowledged that he has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you don't just say that when you Uh, You're religious and you don't really understand what the gospel is. Uh, I'm grateful that this individual, agree with or disagree with, has made a profession of faith. It's it's God's will that none of us would perish. That's Nancy Pelosi and Rush Limbaugh. That's Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, That's Hillary Clinton and you name um, the other figures that we may strongly disagree with. It's every rioter who's destroyed property in the downtown Portland area. It's every person who has raised a fist in the air in opposition to everything um, that is traditional in this nation. Every one of us is a slave to sin and needs a savior. And we can begin to make a difference in our communities if we are praying for those with whom we strongly disagree, uh, that we can somehow allow the Holy Spirit to transform our thinking about who our neighbors are how we respond to them. We can still vote differently. We can support the causes that we think are important, but to begin to pray for them and allow the Holy Spirit to transform our thinking about those whose destiny is not one um, we would want to wish on anybody, even our enemies. Uh, And maybe that would lead ultimately to sharing our faith with people and praying for opportunities to do that um, in ways that only God could orchestrate. So rush Limbaugh has a person limbo Rush Limbaugh has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ my prayer is that everyone whose political opinions I um, disagree with uh, that I'm praying for them and I oftentimes you know there have been members of Congress when they just speak just the tenor of their voice not to mention what they're saying is so annoying to me it's hard to listen I've made a per- made a point of praying for them specifically <laughs> uh first of all to remind myself that I'm no better than you know anybody else, despite my political positions, but also to be reminded that at the end of the day we're going to stand before a holy God, and I want as many people as possible to recognize the tremendous love and grace that He extended to all of those who would call upon His name, and to help all of us to recognize our need to call upon His name. So, with that said, Rush Limbo has a personal personal relationship with Jesus, and I hope others will as well. I don't know why I keep calling him Limbo, Limbaugh. Anyway, you get the idea. Wanna thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for Engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Who will you pray for today?
0: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at KPDQ.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook.